It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wounded Foot Edition. Details to follow shortly. Taking one last quick check of the program outline. Yep, this is going to be a fun one. Do any of you all play that game Guitar Hero? I never quite understood what's so popular about that particular game. We're going to be doing a sermon review about that later today. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because there's just a whole lot of crazy things being said out there nowadays. We're going to talk about some of that today. And uh, those of you following me on Facebook and Twitter know that uh, I had a little bit of an accident today, so I, I can't exactly start the program without discussing the details of said accident um, if you live in the Midwest, um, at least here in, uh, in the greater, uh, central, uh, Indiana area, the homes around here don't have sprinkler systems the way, uh, that, uh, you know, well, the homes do in Southern California. I'm beginning to think that, uh, the reason for that has to do with the fact that, uh, if you had a sprinkler system put in the ground here, uh, the plastic PVC pipes would probably, uh, end up freezing and bursting during the winter time and so not only that you really don't you don't have to sprinkle you don't have to like sprinkle your yard very often due to the fact that it rains frequently well we've had a little bit of a stretch here in uh, indiana where we haven't had a lot of the afternoon thunder showers as a result my yard was looking a little um well it, it was taking on a different color rather than green and so uh, I what uh, I have one of those slow motion sprinkler things, and I have uh, that you can hook up to your uh, hose, and you know soak an area of your yard, and uh, and then move it. And uh, so this afternoon, um, after lunch, I was moving the uh, the sprinkler from uh, one area of the yard to another. Uh, when my foot stepped on a golf tee, now I had no idea that you can turn golf into a blood sport. Apparently, I have discovered the way to do it, and uh, this golf tee was sticking straight up in my yard, and and I just did not see it and uh, did not have the proper foot protection in place, and it went about three-quarters of the way into the uh, into the flesh of my foot, and uh, and... <laughs> Let's just say I, I, I've never experienced body piercing before, and this was uh, not the way I ever envisioned experiencing experiencing body piercing, considering the fact that a wooden golf tee is not what I would consider a very sharp instrument. And I envision that uh, if you use something metal and very sharp, you wouldn't have to twist it to take it out like I had to do with this thing. Anyway, so I was in the embarrassing position of, you know, sitting there on the on the lawn uh, figuring out what am I going to do? Cause I, you know, it, it, a thousand things run through your mind when something like that happens. So the first uh, order of business was to uh, twist the golf tee out from the bottom of my feet or my foot. And then, uh, 
I had my cell phone with me, and then I called my wife. Of course, it seems kind of silly because, you know, I my wife probably couldn't have been more than 25 feet away from me. However, uh, the, calling her on the <laughs> phone seemed like the thing to do. And, boy, was there a lot of blood. Wow. <laughs> so... Uh, we had to uh, hop into the uh, Pirate Christian Radio SUV and ho- head over to the urgent care center for no other reason than to you know clean up the wound, make sure that there you know I don't have a risk uh, risk of infection, and to uh, get a tetanus shot, and that's just you know all kinds of fun too. So uh, if if you're following on, me on Twitter or if you're one of my friends on Facebook, you can see the offending golf tee, the very one. <laughs> That uh, became one with my foot. Uh, I did take a picture of it. The foot is uh, a little bit sore, kind of a throbbing, dull ache going on. It's like a headache inside of your the bottom of your foot. And uh, doctor says, no big deal. It'll heal up in a few days, and uh, you'll be good as new. And uh, thank you for your prayers and support. But I thought I'd have to share the story with you um so there you have it i've figured out a way to to really make golf into a manly bloody sport and uh, and next i think we might want to consider iterations of something known as full contact golf you know or or ultimate fighting golf or you know anyway so there you have it that's the story and um it was all kinds of fun so my wife's driving me to the urgent care Said her, and she's all, "What are you doing?" I'm all, "Well, I'm on my phone." She's all, "What are you on your phone for?" I said, "Well, I'm gonna tweet this out on Twitter and Facebook." And she's all, "What? You're gonna, you're gonna tweet this?" Yeah, and I did. So I don't know why I. Well, you know what? It's funny. The the the, the my friends on Facebook, I feel an affinity with them. You know, somebody there, uh, one of my friends on Facebook is trying to start a Chris Rosebro posse. I have no idea what I'm going to do with a posse, um, but, you know, I, the, the thought is really kind of cool. I mean, I, <laughs> how many of you all can say you have a posse? I mean, I didn't even have one of these until yesterday. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I felt the least I could do was uh, inform people about my wounded foot. Plus, I, you know, in situations like this, prayers are always, I consider it to be the uh, the right way to handle things. And so, anyway... All right, let's take a look at uh, what we're going to be talking about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We got uh, follow-up uh, news on, on that jail in Virginia that's been censoring uh, males, uh, mail that's been coming in into inmates uh, that had religious content. They were censoring all the religious content out of mails. We have a follow-up story on that. They've agreed to stop censoring that mail. Uh, we've got audio from Tony Jones. Uh, remember uh, last week we talked about the fact that Tony Jones was having a discussion on his blog that uh, didn't it was basically designed to talk about philosophically how you know whether or not uh, homosexuality would keep you from having a deep and meaningful Christian relationship with Jesus Christ uh, couldn't talk about those uh, those clear passages that uh, call it a sin uh, but you could sure talk about it philosophically well Tony Jones has kind of weighed in on some of the criticism on this and I want you to hear what he has to say and uh, deal with the it, it, <laughs> We're going to critique his hermeneutic here because it's just bad, and what does that lead to? So we're going to talk about uh, this video he put up on YouTube called Those Pesky Verses About Homosexuality. We'll listen to a couple of minutes of that. And then um, we're going to also listen to what I consider probably one of the most irresponsible and stupid uh, videos out there in the name of Jesus Christ on YouTube. Uh, did the, the question that it answers is, did Jesus name Barack Obama by name? 
as the Antichrist. Uh, this uh, video apparently has gone viral, and uh, we need to respond to it in a sound and sober way because its claims are just dumb. If you know anything about Hebrew and the biblical, and biblical languages, uh, you can see right through this. Unfortunately, with the... Uh, with the penchant for uh, sensationalism and uh, the problem of, uh, let's say, biblical illiteracy, uh, it's be easy for people to say, oh, yeah, see, Jesus named Barack Obama by name as the Antichrist, and here's the video that proves it. <sighs> and then we got news from the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, from the Telegraph in the U.K. They've got a story saying that uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury cl- claims that hell is being alone forever. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to continue mer- uh, working our way through the book of Acts. We're just about finished with the book of Acts. We may actually finish it up today, depending on time. Uh, we'll be looking at Acts 27, possibly 28. And then our uh, sermon review today is from a church called Brick City Community Church in Sanford, North Carolina. Uh, teaching pastors there is named Bill May. And he's got a sermon that he did on Guitar Hero. Now, the reason I picked this particular sermon for review is because this is a great example of a sermon that completely, where the pastor messes up law and gospel. And uh, the passage, I don't know if you've ever run across somebody who talks about works righteousness in such a way that when they look at Jesus' parable, not parable, but his discussion of the last days, he talks about the separation of the sheep from the goats. A lot of people go to that passage to support the idea that you're saved by works. Well, we're going to look at that passage and show how to correctly interpret it so that you don't end up making the mistake that Bill May, Bill May made in this Guitar Hero sermon. Plus, Guitar Hero, what? Isn't that like pretend guitar? I mean, isn't Guitar Hero just like one step above like air guitar? I mean, I'll be blunt. I mean, you know. I, I when I was a kid I played electric guitar and you know I look at these kids playing Guitar Hero and thinking and they think that they're really you know tearing it up and I'm going all you're doing is pressing rainbow colors you're not really playing the guitar there dude but anyway just anyway so lots and lots of stuff to uh, to talk about today and unfortunately, due to my injury, I will not be wearing fuzzy bunny slippers. So um, yeah, we got to keep the uh, uh, keep the 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 pierced foot um, dry, so to speak. And so uh, fuzzy bunny slippers would probably uh, create more moisture than I would really want to deal with, and that could potentially create a bacterial hazard or an environment whereby bacteria could thrive inside of my uh, my wounded foot, so I will not be wearing my fuzzy bunny slippers today while um, doing the program. I know that some of you will be very disappointed to hear that. Um, and the whole visual, uh, mental visual of me and fuzzy bunny slippers, <laughs> yeah, that's just entertainment. <laughs> anyway, so let's uh, dive into the program proper. We've got lots of ground to cover, and uh, from the... Uh, from Christianity Today, our first story comes from them, and the headline reads, Virginia Jail Agrees to Stop Censoring Religious Mail. They were poets and didn't even know it. Anyway, um, did you catch the uh, the rhyming? Never mind. Um, <laughs> all right, this is uh, posted uh, by Sarah uh, Pulliam, who is a writer there at Christianity Today. 
And uh, we read, a Virginia jail will stop censoring religious mail after protests from civil rights organizations that clerks had turned Bible-quoting missives from an inmate's mother into tattered strips of paper signed, Love, Mom. Rappahannock Regional Jail Authorities agreed to change the policy after receiving a letter signed by the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, the Rutherford Institute, Prison Fellowship, the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and the American Civil Liberties Union. Interesting that the American Civil Liberties Union uh, joined in on that particular dogpile. We continue, prisons may block writings that pose security threats, including hate speech, X-rated images, but must allow access to otherwise religious materials according to several court rulings and federal law. They can't treat religious materials like a knife or drugs or pornography, said Eric Rosbach, National Litigation Director for the Beckett Fund. Jail officials said the censorship was not motivated by content, but rather due to a policy that prohibits inmates from receiving swaths of computer printouts which had been used to clog toilets and otherwise harass the guards. So this wasn't really about uh, religious liberties at all. It was about clogged toilets. Uh-huh. Uh, which had been... <laughs> the cut-up correspondence in questions had included Christian material printed out from the Internet, marked up by the inmate's mother. The amended policy will allow such messages to remain unscathed Subject to the condition that inmates can only retain mail in their cell that can be stored neatly within the storage bin of the bunk and is not a fire hazard, wrote Joseph Higgs, jail superintendent uh, in a statement. The ACLU na- uh, announced the new policy on Monday, August 10th. Rossbach said religious content clearly played a role in the censorship, however, and added that he hoped that the successful outcry over this case would prompt others to think twice about maintaining or initiating similar practices. Prison officials should be aware that the Bible should not be censored as a dangerous item, he said. It's something that can be actually, can actually help them do their jobs in terms of rehabilitating prisoners and bringing them back into society. Interesting. So uh, the moral of the story here is, is that uh, if you uh, have a friend or loved one who is in jail and you would like to send them a religious correspondence, be sure to send uh, the the religious correspondence on paper that's easily flushable and will not clog the county um, toilets. <sighs> Man. <laughs> okay. Uh, yep. Sign that one off. All right. Uh, Tony Jones. Now, uh, I don't know if you all know this. There's a great blog out there by the name of Five Point Salt. It's uh, 5FPTSALT.com. And uh, the, 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 the gentleman who runs that blog, he does a fine job, and he has posted a, uh, a, a blog post regarding Tony Jones and those pesky six Bible verses about homosexuality. And uh, I think the guy who runs that is Joel Taylor. Anyway, we, uh, we continue. And uh, what I want to do now is uh, just kind of bring you up to speed. Remember last week, uh, or was it the week before? I'm getting old. Uh, time flies. Anyway, uh, Tony Jones on his blog decided to have a conversation. 
that's so postmodern and emergent, isn't it? Just wonderful um, about uh, whether or not somebody's uh, can you know relationship with Jesus Christ would be hampered by homosexuality. However, the rules of the conversation were that you couldn't use uh, these those six pesky clear Bible verses that clearly teach that it's wrong, an abomination, a sin, and um, instead you had to focus on philosophical stuff. And so uh, shortly after that, we had a great, great rebuttal by uh, Andrew DeLoach of uh, Take the Stand that airs here on Pirate Christian Radio, which uh, I read here on the air. And then I pointed out the fact that Tony Jones was uh, speaking out of both sides of his mouth because uh, on the one hand, he claims he denies the doctrine of original sin because he doesn't think it's clearly taught in scriptures. And then he turned around and uh, on the homosexuality issue, decided to kind of beg the question and, and throw out the discussion involving those, as he calls it, six, six pesky Bible verses about homosexuality. Well, Tony Jones has responded to the controversy uh, regarding his limiting of the conversation to philosophy and at the same time chimed in uh, and given us his reason as to why he rejects what those verses say, and um, this is just amazing because um, uh, Tony Jones is a doctoral student. He's getting a Ph.D., and this is not what I would consider to be Ph.D.-level thinking. This is actually a very sophomore-ish uh, argument that he puts forward. So I'm going to play a couple of minutes of that, and uh, with that in mind, here we go. Here's Tony Jones, uh, one of the leaders of the leaderless emergent church movement. Assuming the Bi- this, that I should phrase the question this way, assuming that the Bible did not or does not make any clear statements about the morality of homosexual relationships or their infringement on our relationship with Christ, what arguments could be made to show that a homosexual relationship was damaging to one's relationship with Christ? So I guess what I would say is I'm not asking anybody to not use biblical reasoning. I'm not asking anybody not to um, refer to biblical passages. I'm just saying these six particular passages, I think that the hermeneutical differences that I have with those of you who use them as your sole basis for concluding that homosexuality uh, would keep someone from a full relationship with Christ, were not they're irresolvable. The main basis for me... So, okay, just real, want to make something clear here. He's making it clear he's got hermeneutical differences. I mean, let's throw out some big theological terms there. Whoa, he used the big one, hermeneutical. And so hermeneutical basically has to do with how you interpret Scripture. So he's saying that he's got irresolvable hermeneutical differences. Now, that being the case, since he's throwing around a big scholarly term like hermeneutics, you would think that the next thing that's going to come from his mouth is a, um, how shall I put it, um, well, a very scholarly, scholastic, academic, backed up with good, good scholarly thinking uh, reason hermeneutically for why he's at an impasse with those who would say those Bibles are clear. It's kind of like a no-brainer. Are you ready for his hermeneutical reason? Believe me when I tell you, it's going to be um, uh, underwhelming and a little shocking due to the fact that Tony Jones is a uh, getting a PhD. Here we go. Coming to a different hermeneutical conclusion than some of you is because 
There are all sorts of other verses in Scripture that you don't apply with the same literalism with which you applied those six verses that homosexuality is an abomination or a man shouldn't lie with another man, this kind of thing. You ignore all sorts of other verses that are in the same context as those verses, whether it be women covering their heads in church or not eating shellfish or not mixing uh, dairy products with meat products or not eating uh, the meat from animals with cloven hoofs. There's all sorts of stuff that isn't applied with the same literalism, that, that was once considered an abomination by the people of God. It isn't currently considered an abomination by the people of God. Okay, we're going <laughs> to... Oh, man. Okay, this is all kinds of fun here. Um, this, again, is a completely underwhelming argument. I thought we had valid hermeneutical reasons here. And what does it boil down to? Well, first of all, notice that he's... Um, shifted uh the um the issue is the issue that the people of god think that homosexuality is a sin or is it that the bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin whoop hang on a sexual <clears throat> sorry about that <clears throat> the uh the answer to the question is it's that God considers it a sin because God is the one who inspired the words of Scripture to be written for us. Remember, the Bible is God's word, not the words of a particular group of individual churchy people. It's not the words of church lady from Dana Carvey's in Saturday Night Live. No, 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 no. It's whether or not God, what God thinks about it. This is God's opinion, Okay. Now, the other big thing is he says, well, the reason I think there's a hermeneutical impasse is because you guys are taking homosexuality literally, but in the same context of those other passages, well, we have other stuff that you're not taking literally, so therefore we could just throw the whole thing out. Well, let's see here. Um, okay, let's see if his argument holds water. We're going to basically look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9, 10, and um, and 11. And we're going to basically see if his big hermeneutical impasse makes any sense whatsoever when you apply just a little bit of common sense, logical thinking. <clears throat> we read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, reading from the English Sanctified Version. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, okay, in this, in this passage... Homosexuality is listed as well as sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, thieving, greediness, drunkenness, uh, those who are revilers, swindlers. Okay, so using his uh, his way of thinking, well, why is it that uh, we should say, well, if, if he's right, then we shouldn't be bound to take uh, this whole idea that adultery. I mean, why why should we consider adult take adultery literally here in this passage? 
we should go ahead and say, well, based on Tony Jones's argument, since in this passage, apparently in the greater context, there's also things that we don't take literally, that therefore we can say, hey, listen, we don't have to take uh, sexual immorality and adultery, uh, adultery literally anymore. So that's okay. You can go ahead and, and commit all the adultery that you want, and you can be as sexually immoral as you want because we're not going to take those these those sins literally anymore because, uh, you know, in the greater context, we also don't take uh, headscarves literally. That means also, by the way, you Christians out there who feel like you have to go to work for a living and, and earn an honest wage, oh, forget that. Go ahead and just start stealing away. Yeah, because in the same verse, in, literally in the same sentence uh, that uh, homosexuality is mentioned as a sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we also theft is, is mentioned. Well, why would we need to take theft literally as a sin? Why would that keep somebody from inheriting God's kingdom? Come on, we don't take headscarves seriously anymore. They, we don't take that literally. We don't need to take thieving literally anymore. Let's go ahead and take throw that out too. So uh, those of you Christians out there who, uh, who you know, you've been dying to find an easier way to make a wage, go ahead and steal away. Don't worry, you'll still make it into heaven. And it, th th this will not in any way whatsoever affect your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because, you know, if you don't take headscarves, literally, you don't need to, take, need to take theft and adultery and sexual immorality or greed and drunkenness. Oh, stop being a literalist when it comes to all those sins. That's not what God literally meant. That's ridiculous. No, 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 no. You see what I'm saying? So Tony Jones's big argument, big hermeneutical problem here is that we don't take headscarves seriously. Therefore, we can throw out homosexuality. I don't think so, because if you just apply his argument consistently, there is no such thing as sin anymore at all. And you can go ahead and live like, well, pardon the phrase, but you can live like the devil and you can still have a deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus. That's the logical outcome of Tony Jones's big Im impasse in hermeneutics here. Let's, let's finish what he was saying. You've chosen that these verses that refer to homosexuality do still apply in that same way, but other verses do not. Okay, so that's why we're at an impasse, hermeneutically speaking, on those six verses. Tony, I thought you were smarter than this. Come on. Seriously, we've chosen to take homosexuality literally from First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Uh, when we, it's, if you would just be enlightened like you, you, you don't have to take it literally. You don't have to take thieving literally or adultery literally. Uh huh. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So there's another big, mighty. Uh, awe-inspiring, just bring us to our knees, shaking in fear, um, uh, emergent hermeneutic. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Using that logic, there is no such thing as sin at all. And you can live like the devil and still have a deep and meaningful, loving, forgiving relationship with Jesus Christ. <sighs> ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. All right, we are up on our first break. Uh, when we come back, let's see what I have here on the docket. Oh, yeah, we're going to do this video. Did Jesus name... Barack Obama by name as the Antichrist? Well, you're going to hear the evidence for this. It's ridiculous. 
and then talk about the Archbishop of Canterbury and his claims that hell is being alone forever. We're going to continue working through Acts chapter 27, and then our sermon review today is on, you know, that Christian game, that oh-so-relevant game known as, uh, well, Guitar Hero. (laughs) Man. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. 
The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. And I am the Chief of Sinners, Chris Roseboro. If you're looking for a program that's going to give you three easy steps on how to make yourself more holy, more sanctified, or how to have a better, um, more fulfilling sex life, uh, you tuned into the wrong program, so you might want to change the channel. Just just saying, I just want to let you know that. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that's that's right, it is. And uh, something I would like you to consider, as God has blessed you, uh, would you consider also sharing that blessing with other people? Because your financial support not only makes it possible for us to bring this program to you, it makes it possible for us to bring this program to other people and for you to uh, partner with us in uh, making this program available for people literally around the world to listen to. You can support us a couple of different ways. You can, first of all, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, home of our uh, uh, fighting for the Faith Radio Archives. And when you arrive there, you can click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, and that allows you to uh, send your gift in securely, instantly, right there online. Or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. Now, listen. I know there's a lot of controversy regarding Barack Obama. In fact, if you go back and you listen to uh, my interview with Shirley Phelps Roper, I mean, she's pretty much already made the decision that Barack Obama is the beast himself, the dragon, the antichrist, and that it's just a matter of minutes before he reveals himself, takes, and the horns pop out of his head, and his head spins around, and he projectile vomits all over the place, therefore making it clear that he is none other than Satan incarnate. But that's Shirley Phelps Roper. And uh, we Christians need to avoid, at all possible costs, getting involved in this type of uh, stuff. Now, I have commented on the program in the past that it really is disturbing to me, especially during the election, that people were literally making allusions to Barack Obama as if he was a messiah. The whole messianic undertones of his election were very disturbing at at the very minimum. Okay? Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, what I'm talking about is basically taking huge leaps and somehow using the Bible to support these huge leaps. You, as Christians, especially those uh, Christians who uh, we have to exercise good discernment, you don't want to make claims that go beyond what the evidence shows. And you don't want to fabricate evidence uh, that isn't there. Okay. That being said, uh, here is uh, audio from a video that has gone viral on YouTube did Jesus reveal the name of the Antichrist? Listen for yourself. We'll pick this apart because, the, oh, man, this is so flimsy. It's oh, embarrassing. Did Jesus really reveal the name of the Antichrist? I will report the facts. You can decide. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said these words, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from the heavens. These words are written in Greek and translated to English. However, Jesus spoke these words originally in Aramaic, which is the most ancient form of Hebrew. As you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. If a modern Jewish rabbi were to speak these words of Jesus today, he would speak them in Hebrew, much the same way that Jesus would have spoken them. So in Hebrew, Jesus said that he saw Satan falling as lightning from the heights or from the heavens. So what are the words for lightning and heights or heavens in Hebrew? From the Strong's Hebrew Dictionary, word number 1299, a primitive root word meaning to lighten or lightning or to cast forth, the word is barak. In the Strong's Hebrew Dictionary, word number 1300, lightning or by analogy a gleam, a flashing sword, or a brightness or a glittering, the Hebrew word is barak. So lightning or a flash of light in Hebrew is pronounced barak or barak. Now consider this amazing fact. The book of Isaiah is the source of origin for the Christian concept and understanding of Satan, or Lucifer, as Isaiah calls him, in chapter 14, especially in verses 12 through 19. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14, Lucifer, or Satan, is credited with these words, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. In the verses of Isaiah that refer directly to Lucifer, several times it is mentioned that Satan has fallen from the heights or from the heavens. The Hebrew word used in this text for the heights from which Satan fell is Strong's Hebrew word 1116, pronounced Bama. Bama is most commonly used to refer to a high sacred place as well as to the heights of the heavens or the clouds. In Hebrew, the letter Wa is often transliterated as a U. Some scholars use the O for this transliteration. It is primarily used as a conjunction to join concepts together. So to join in Hebrew poetry the concept of lightning or barak and a high place like heaven or the heights of heaven, the letter U or sometimes O, the Hebrew letter Wa, would be used. So, barak O Bama or Barak U Bama in Hebrew poetry, similar to the style written in Isaiah, would translate literally as lightning and the heights or the heavens, or lightning from the heights of the skies or the heavens. The word Satan is Satan in Hebrew, a direct translation. So back to Jesus' prophecy. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, if spoken by a Jewish rabbi today, influenced by the poetry of Isaiah, he would say these words in Hebrew, the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, as, And I saw Satan as Barak Obama. Did Jesus reveal to us the name of the Antichrist? I report you decide no he oh man this is uh, 
Apparently, the uh, whoever put this video together doesn't know his uh, Hebrew at all. It's ridiculous. Oh, man. So, if you don't know your biblical languages, how do you know whether or not there's any credibility to what this guy is saying? Well, I'm going to back up the tape, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you where the sleight of hand occurs Remember when I did my critique on the movie Zeitgeist and he was trying to make the claim that Jesus was a sun god and because he was called the son of God? But the problem was is that it was based upon English, the way it sounds to us in English. Son and son sound exactly the same, but one is spelled S-O-N and the other is spelled S-U-N. Same kind of thing is going on here. It's just a simple sleight of hand. Here we go, real simple. Let me show you where the uh, misdirection occurs, and uh, you'll be able to see it rather clearly. Plus, it doesn't work out in Hebrew because uh, the uh, it's anyway the, the the way it would be formed in Hebrew is not the way he's describing it. He's just giving you the the lexical def, uh, dictionary, if you would, uh, word there, not putting it in context as, and not even parsing it out correctly. And it would, and when you parse it out, it wouldn't sound like Barack Obama. It would, it would basically sound like uh, Barack Obama, you know, something, something like that. Anyway, here we go. Here's the slide of hand. Watch. Did I'm, Jesus really reveal the name of the antichrist? No, I will report the facts. You can decide. These are not and facts. This is just stupid. Here we go. Hang on. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said these words. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from the heavens. Okay, now stop here. Hold on a second here. He says that's a prophecy. Let's, first of all, remember, 90% of all problems when somebody's quoting to you the Bible can be solved following three simple rules. And are you ready for what they are? Context, context, and context. All right, so here we go. Let's get a little bit of context. What's going on in Luke chapter 10? Is Jesus giving us a prophecy about the Antichrist? We read, starting back at verse 13, Woe to you, Corazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Uh, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, so here we go. Is Luke chapter 10, verse 18, a prophecy? About the Antichrist? No. Not even close. In fact, it's more like Jesus basically making a statement about how Satan's pretty much been thrown down, defeated. 
the guy's uh, been rendered powerless, if you would. And, uh, and you know, he's a has-been. He's washed up. He's, you know, Jesus has uh, crushed his head, if you know what I mean. Anyway, and he says, but don't rejoice about that. Rejoice instead about the fact that your names are written in heaven. Okay? So, already we've got a problem with this little viral video. It's claiming that Luke chapter 10, 18 is a prophecy. <laughs> it ain't. We continue. These words are written in Greek. and Yes, because they were written by Luke. Luke is, he wrote his stuff in very wonderful Greek. We continue. Translated to English. However, Jesus spoke these words originally in Aramaic. Now, watch. Here comes the sleight of hand. Okay. So here we go. This is he's throwing a whole bunch of facts out and just confuse. This is all designed to create confusion and misdirection. These words were written in Greek, yes, translated into English. Uh huh. And then when Jesus spoke these things, he he most likely spoke them in Aramaic. With you so far. Here we go. Watch this. Which is the most ancient form of Hebrew? Hebrew and Aramaic are not the same language. They are both Semitic languages, but they are definitely different. But watch this. Here we go. As you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Okay, this is where the slide of hand happens. Okay. Did you blink? Did you miss it? He says, Jesus spoke these things in Aramaic, and Aramaic is the most ancient form of Hebrew, and the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. If a modern Jewish rabbi were to speak these words of Jesus today, he would speak them in Hebrew. <clears throat> That's kind of a, what we call cheating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is all. This is, there's a whole lot of cheating going on here. So let me see if I got this straight. So they were written in Greek. Got it. Check. Jesus probably spoke them originally in Aramaic. With you, uh huh. Aramaic is the most ancient form of Hebrew. Well, okay. But if a modern Hebrew scholar were to speak these words of Jesus today, he would speak them in Hebrew. What does a modern Hebrew scholar have to do with anything? Jesus didn't speak these words in Hebrew, according to you. He spoke them in Aramaic. So where'd the Hebrew come from? Oh, yeah, because we're trying to prove that Jesus made a prophecy regarding the Antichrist and named uh, Barack Obama by name. Yeah, but the problem is you can't get there from here. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Evil can evil cannot jump that chasm. It's not possible. There's a big wall. It goes about 10 miles up in the air. If you try to jump the chasm, you will smash into the wall. So this guy just glosses right over that and goes, nyeh, 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 and he hits the wall, but then pretends he didn't. And let me back this up. Listen carefully again to this little jump, and you can see the, the sleight of hand, and the whole thing falls apart. Form of Hebrew. As you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. If a modern Jewish rabbi were to speak these words of Jesus today, he would speak them in Hebrew, much the same way that Jesus would have spoken them. <laughs> no, Jesus spoke them in Aramaic. You just said that. Oh, man, you can't have your cake and eat it too. It's just not a physical possibility. So in Hebrew, Jesus said that he saw Satan. <laughs> anyway, I think you get the point. Um, if you want to see it, it's on YouTube. Did Jesus reveal the name of the Antichrist? My answer is a definitive no, because I actually know Hebrew and I know Greek. And what this guy did is a complete sleight of hand, and it just doesn't work. Plus, when you read the, the verse in context, it's not a prophecy about the Antichrist. So what? when we Christians run across bad, bad stuff like this, what should we do? Should we say, well, you know, 
what we should probably do is be quiet because what if what if Barack really is the Antichrist? You know, we don't want to we don't want to uh, tell people that he isn't if he is. So maybe we should just kind of let this stuff go. No. You basically say, listen, I'm a Christian. We Christians are told not to lie by God. We're told to love our neighbor. And the way we love our neighbor, one of the ways we do it is by telling the truth. And I don't have a problem telling you, listen, I have no idea whether or not Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Haven't seen any horns yet, though. Uh, That being said, this argument is absolutely duplicitous and wrong. And I, as a Christian, have no problem saying whoever put this stuff together, it was irresponsible, bad scholarship, sleight of hand, completely deceptive, wrong, evil, and the whole nine yards. And I don't have a problem whatsoever as a Christian repudiating it and saying this is not, not, not a biblical and or Christian argument. All right. Yeah, just I had to get that off my chest, you know, because, you know, that's, you know. Anyway. All right. Moving across the pond from the Telegraph in the UK, a uh, article written by Martin Beckford, who is the religious affairs correspondent. The headline reads, Archbishop of Canterbury says hell is being alone forever. Okay. Um, I can't wait to read this. Dr. Rowan Williams, who, who, by the way, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, we lovingly refer to him as Captain Obvious. Um, you have to go back and listen to previous episodes if you want to know what that means. He said that although his vision was not that of the traditional inferno, being alone with his selfish little ego for all eternity would be torment enough. So that's the way we're going to determine what hell is. Oh, man. is <laughs> Well, see, because being alone for all eternity with his selfish little ego would be torment enough for him. That we're, Therefore, we can just whole, throw out the whole lake of fire thing. He also admitted he is sometimes embarrassed by the time that uh, the Church of England takes to keep up with, the, with changes in society. <sighs> I thought we were supposed to uh, proclaim the truth regardless of what the changes are in society and whether or not society wants to hear our truth claims. Truth is true, whether you believe it or not. But it's Well, it's true. If no one believed that 2 plus 2 equals 4, it would still equal 4, even if no one believed it. Even if society said, ah, we're done with that whole traditional, old modern way of looking at 2 plus 2. We want to find a more open way of looking at 2. We want, we want a kinder and gentler math. You know, 2 plus 2 equals 4, so rigid, so confining. Uh, come on, two plus two, we need to think of that out of the box. Even if society did that, we would have to basically say, uh, no, two plus two will always equal four, whether or not it's in vogue or not. His comments come in a new television program to be broadcast on Channel 4. I'm assuming that's a BBC uh, channel. This weekend in which five leading religious figures in Britain explain the basic tenets of their faith and how they know that God exists. Oh, I please, those of you in uh, Great Britain, if you can TiVo this and, and find a way to get me, make, make this video available to me, oh, you would be doing me a huge service. This is exactly the kind of programming I would love to see. Uh, Dr. Williams, the most senior cleric in the established church, said, I think I'd prefer to talk about being confident that God exists or trusting that God exists. It's not knowing as you know as a state of affairs in the world. It's it's much more of a sense that you're in the presence of something greater than you can conceive. <sighs> Subjective. Okay, I suppose from my teens, I've just been aware of that something greater than I can put words to it in the presence I live. 
But he admitted that he has suffered moments of strain in faith. Well, no wonder. It's purely subjective. Asked by the filmmaker Anthony Thomas about what happens to the soul after death, the archbishop replied, all we really know is that is that afterlife is that God has promised to be there. <laughs> really? That's that's all we know? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, Bishop <laughs> Rowan Williams has said that the only thing we know about the soul after death is that God promises to be there. Oh, man. How did this guy get to be the Archbishop of Canterbury? Come on. When asked if hell existed, what it's like, he said, well, my concept of hell, oh, right, right off the bat, that's the problem right there. If somebody asks you the question, does hell exist? We're not interested in your concept of hell. The, <laughs> what was Jesus's concept of hell? Can you enlighten us with that? I mean, who cares what the Archbishop of Canterbury thinks about hell? The question is, since he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's supposed to be beholden to the scriptures and to Jesus Christ. And he's supposed to be representing Jesus and talking about what Jesus, you know. <clears throat> my concept of hell, I suppose, is being stuck with myself forever and no way out. Oh, man. <sighs> Whew, that's a... Boy, I'd hate to suffer that. Uh, whether anybody ever gets to that point, I have no idea. But that, it, that it's possible to be stuck with my selfish little ego for all eternity, that's what I would regard as hell. <sighs> so he's got a completely subjective-based faith, you know, because he feels something bigger out there. Uh, he, he doesn't proclaim what the Bible says and basically says that his concept of hell knows it's his concept, not Christ's concept, not what Christ said, not what the Bible says, it's his concept. And that uh, he said that the, well, the only thing that we know is that God's going to be there after death. This guy is not qualified to speak for Christianity, let alone be the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm not even convinced this guy is literally qualified to be a janitor at a church. I, I, just saying, because, I mean, he seems to have, understand the Christian faith about as deeply as um, an atheist. Anyway, whether anybody ever gets to that. Okay, when told that this does not look or sound like the biblical image of the dam being tortured in lakes of fire beneath the earth, Dr. Williams replied that being alone forever is torment enough if you think about it. <laughs> So the people at the Telegraph in the UK basically say, wait a second, this doesn't sound anything like what the Bible says. He said, well, it doesn't matter. That, that's torment enough. Oh, man. He also said it's not necessary to regard every verse of Genesis as recording history in the sense we now understand it. Well, of course not, despite the fact that Jesus considered it history. But then again, I don't think this guy knows that. Asked why the Church of England is still struggling to admit women bishops long after Britain had its first female prime minister, he said the church has got to solve this on its own terms. And yes, that does take longer, and it can be embarrassing sometimes. Oh my goodness, this guy has... Is he biblically illiterate? How did this guy become the Archbishop of Canterbury? This is just embarrassing. 
Unbelievable. All right, we are. <laughs> oh, if it's if you're being alone by yourself for all eternity, that's torment enough. If you just think about it. Yeah, that's uh, whew, that, that's some. That's some sound biblical reasoning right there for you. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to continue working through the book of Acts, and then we're going to do our sermon review today, Guitar Hero by uh, Bill May of Brick City Community Church in Sanford, North Carolina. Don't want to miss it. Unbelievable. I... (laughs) Oh, man. Is it any wonder that the church is in the mess that it's in? How did this guy get to where he, uh, maybe that's the reason why he was picked. I just, <sighs> anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, I'm going to go sit alone by myself with my little uh, ego for a little while during the commercial break here. Um, email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Avaster, it be too late to alter course, mateys. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel boarders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Why is it that uh, major, quote, Christian leaders are completely embarrassed about what the Bible says? How do these guys get to be leaders in the Christian church at all? They should be thrown out. We don't need these guys. We need guys who boldly proclaim what Jesus taught and confessed and what God's word clearly teaches. Just saying, you know, anyway. All right, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and um, we're right about at the end of it. And the, really, the, the 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 goal of the exercise, if you would, aside from just, you know, good, sound biblical teaching, 
is to let you hear for yourself, familiarize you with the passages, and demonstrate that Christianity literally grew as a result of God's work. Now, the, the reason I say that is, is because it is the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate on uh, basically pagans, uh, the, the unregenerate, unbelievers. And this comes about and happens through the bold proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins and calling pagan rep uh, sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And over and over and over and over and over again, we found that was the case. And we were, because of the, the very good historical documentation that Dr. Luke gave us, he was an eyewitness to many of the events that occurred in the book of Acts, um, we are privy to the details of Paul's preaching. What was the content of it? And and, and what you know, what were the controversies in the early Christian church? And what we find is, is that the church grew as a result of the bold proclamation that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of Israel, and he's announcing the forgiveness of sins by his vicarious death on the cross, and that we should uh, that people should repent and trust in this good news and this gospel. And through this preaching, God the Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin and their unbelief, and the Holy Spirit regenerates them and gives them repentance and faith in Christ. Real simple, no seeker-sensitive stuff going on. Now, what happened, though, is, is that this preaching met with stiff opposition. Yeah, and the disciples and the apostles, they didn't consider that to be some kind of a roadblock where they went, uh-oh, you know, uh, you know, Paul, you know, that preaching that you did there, uh, you know, about, you know, Jesus and, you know, salvation by grace through faith and calling sinners to repentance. Uh, those people down there in uh, in Ephesus, they, they got really upset, or those people in Thessalonica, they got really upset by your message. So I, we think you should rethink that thing and maybe make it a little bit more seeker-friendly. No, that was just basically uh, the hazard of the job, you know. Christ promised us that there would be persecution, and he told us exactly what to do when people don't listen to you. He said, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He didn't say, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if the gospel meets with opposition, you need to kind of regroup, reform, re-strategize, and come up with some better marketing and packaging to make it more palatable, palatable for these people who are reject, rejecting and rejecting it. No, the reality is, is that it's to be expected. The gospel is a stumbling block. That people would reject it, that people would be upset by it, that people would uh, get violent after, uh, after the proclamation of the gospel is to be expected. That is one of the occupational hazards of proclaiming this truth because it's not our truth, it's God's truth. And remember, men by nature are sinful Men by nature are at war with God, and uh, you know they they've got a bazooka aimed right between God's eyebrows, and they're trying to they, they, with every opportunity they can they are launching off but you know bazooka rounds at God, and when you proclaim God's truth, they figure you're just as good a surrogate and might as well rough you up. You get what I'm saying here? So uh, it's to be expected when people reject and don't want to have anything to do with the gospel. That's not a deficiency in the gospel message. 
It shows the sinfulness of the human listeners to the message. Just pointing that out. All right, we're at Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 26, we have this great... Oh, man, I love Paul, man. He This guy has got guts. I mean, he has one opportunity to defend himself but to, you know, with the with the Festus, and what does he do? He goes for it, and he proclaims the repentance and the forgiveness of sins to... Oh, it's just so good. Anyway, uh, Acts chapter 27. So when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul. He's under arrest now. And some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon and co- uh, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, uh, near which was the city of La- uh, Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, Because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also of lives. But the centurion paid paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor off Crete, Uh, facing both southwest and northwest and spending the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's uh, boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would uh, run aground on on, uh, Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest lay on, uh, lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you, ha- you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and injured this lo- injury and loss. <laughs> hey, Paul, no one likes somebody who says, I told you so. Now, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, 
God was granted, uh, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have, as I have been told. We must run aground on some island. When the 14th night, this two weeks of this, man, two weeks of this storm, when the 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, and let, uh, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, and they let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense, and without food having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. They all were encouraged and ate some food uh, themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchor and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, They hoist, uh, then hoisting the foresail, to the wind they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So when we now pick up uh, the book of Acts, we will read the one, the last chapter, and we will be done with Acts, and we'll have to figure out where we're going to go from there. Anyway, good stuff, and uh, interesting, interesting story. And no, this is not about failure. You know, no, this is not about, you, know, you can't allegorize this and talk about, you know, your personal 14 days at sea or whatever. That's not how you interpret this passage. All right, now with that, we're going to dive into our sermon review proper, which means I have to cue up the uh, sermon review uh, music. And uh, with that in mind, Maestro, let's go. From the good, the bad, the ugly, that's our theme here for sermon reviews. We review it all, good, bad, and ugly. Yesterday we had a fantastic sermon from the Reverend Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Today, uh, well, probably the exact opposite. This is a sermon uh, about Guitar Hero. Well, that's what it's called, and it's from Brick City Community Church in Sanford, North Carolina. The pastor there is Bill May, and the reason why I've picked this particular sermon is because this is a great example of a confusion of law and gospel. 
And one of the passages that many, many people misinterpret is when Jesus talks about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. We'll get to that when the appropriate time comes up in the sermon, but I want to prepare you ahead of time to be ready to uh, to venture there, and I'll show you how the gospel plays into it, because many people interpret that in line of the law, and they miss the very important thing in the very early stages of that particular story. Anyway, uh, let's kill the music. Thank you. So without any further ado, we're going to dive into our sermon review. This is called Get in the Game, Guitar Hero. And uh, here we go. This Thursday, we celebrate the anniversary, the seventh anniversary of a terrorist attack on our nation. And when we see these images, they bring, I don't know for you, but they bring back memories for me. I remember sitting there just gripped and glued to the TV for a whole week, just trying to figure out what was going on. And I watched from my TV story after story after story of heroes. You know, today we're talking about guitar hero. We're talking about heroes. And what does it mean to be a hero? You know, uh, these are some true heroes. The fire, the firemen, the fire, fire ladies, I guess that's how you call them. Fire women. I don't know how you call them. Firefighter. There you go. Men and women. The policemen. What do you call the police? people <laughs> um, pastor may may not be the brightest bulb in the bunch sharpest tool in the shed <sighs> the crime fighters emt workers i mean it was amazing to see that you know what happened people just coming people leaving their houses and going to new york to help to just get involved, to, to help clean up debris, to, uh, to, to sort through wreckage and pull out dead bodies, to pull out live bodies and help them come back to life, you know, dead bodies that are almost dying. And, I mean, it was amazing. You could, story after story after story. And, and, and the only reason I showed that is because we're close to that, and that's, that's what we equate heroism to. You know, we see, we see, I mean, in fact, I looked up dictionary, and, it, you know, talking about, Heroes, what is the definition of a hero? And, and the definition was someone, you know, who uh, uh, exerts bravery in, in extreme circumstances. And, you know, it's usually related to military. It's usually related to uh, someone in a battle or some kind of extreme circumstances. And that was, is what we as the world fixate on heroes. And I don't want to discount that at all today because there are some true heroes that come from 9-11. Those guys that wrestled that plane down to the ground, Flight 93. Those are some heroes. Those are some heroes, you know. Anyone who sacrifices their life for another person. Anyone who, who decides that their life is, is greater to serve a greater cause than to serve itself. That's a hero. In fact, when we talk about heroes in the Bible, and in fact, I left my stuff. Here we go. When we talk about heroes in the Bible, there's a whole faith entitled, a whole chapter called Heroes of the Faith. And the death. I got. <laughs> oh man, I got to point something out here. Um, the chapter to, when you're reading your Bible and you know you see a chapter heading, uh, the chapter headings are not actually part of the text. Those were added later. Those are not inspired. But he's referring to the uh, basically the great hall of faith passage in Hebrews 11. I'm going to read a portion, uh, probably a lot of that here in a minute. But I want you to hear what this guy says. Here we go. Definition of of heroes in the Bible are a little bit different from our definitions, and I just want to talk about 
them today and talk about heroes. But then you got this game, Guitar Heroes. Anybody ever play Guitar Hero? Here comes the relevant hook. Yeah, we're going to get people to come to church to hear this sermon because, well, we're talking about Guitar Hero. <gasps> what the, there's a church talking about Guitar Hero? Well, I got to go hear that. You, that. you think that's how people think? That, no, they're probably sitting there going, what? A church preaching about Guitar Hero? Uh-huh, yeah. It's a blast. It's a blast. You know what I love about Guitar Hero? You don't have to be able to play the guitar to play it. I mean, you don't. In fact, there are some great guitar heroes, game players, that can't play a guitar for nothing that can smoke that game. Here's a problem with Guitar Hero. Not to offend all you youths who have made it to expert level, but it's pretend. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I wouldn't have figured that out if you hadn't pointed out there, Pastor. Thanks. Needed that tidbit. It's pretend. There's four different levels, man. You can jump up on easy level and play right along with Slash and smoke it. You know? And you're pretending. You think you are something, but you're pretending. You're not. You're not. Hello, losers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let me see if i have this right okay this guy <laughs> this pastor has decided to go with a seeker sensitive way of doing church and so he's doing an entire sermon series called get in the game and believe it or not there he there was let me read to you the names of the different sermons in the series. They were Get in the Game, Mario Party, Get in the Game, Call of Duty, Get in the Game, Space Invaders, Get in the Game, Guitar Hero, Get in the Game, We Play. That's W-I-I. And so he, he he's basically trying to come up with a, quote, relevant way to reach the culture. And supposedly somebody who may have gotten their mailing or heard that they're doing a sermon on Guitar Hero has showed up. And then the pastor says it's not real and he calls them losers. Oh, man. <laughs> that is so messed up and convoluted. Thanks for coming to church today because uh, the only reason why you're here is because we decided that we were going to do a sermon series that sounded relevant to you. And since you've showed up, we're going to let you know that you're a complete loser. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Okay. Huh. I'm sorry. I'm sidetracked here. That's just funny. I can tell you right now, for playing that thing over there, I know how difficult it really is to play a guitar and sound like one of those pros. It's, it's something else, but here you have the game, Guitar Hero. The game, Guitar Hero, where people pretend to be something they're not. The Bible talks... Uh, keep in mind, you're insulting your, your, your target market here, dude. <laughs> talks about faith, and it talks about what makes faith. And what a hero is made of. And it is... A hero in the Bible is someone of great faith. Someone. Okay, now listen to what he said. A hero in the Bible is somebody of great faith. Now, which begs the question: How are you defining faith? We got to. Uh, I oh man, I should not have gone off on that funny little bunny trail there because I got to get down to some serious business here. Faith. Okay, what is faith? Faith is simple. 
childlike trust in the promises of God for the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's simple, childlike trust. And even the ability to have that trust, that trust itself, is a gift from God. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Faith is not something that you muster up within yourself. Faith is not the one work that you have to do in order to be saved, and then God does the rest. There's a lot of misconceptions about that. No, faith itself, the ability to believe, you don't have that by nature. Because by nature, you are at war with God. You are an object of God's wrath. You are at war with God. And God's not sitting there up in heaven just wringing his hands saying, I hope that guy gets, is able to muster some faith in me. No, 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 no. Through the proclamation of, the, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, our unbelief, and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and works faith in us. Literally gives it as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Read it. Anyway, um... So that being said, listen carefully to hear if uh, uh, Bill May here is uh, if how he's defining the term and how he's using it. Now, I'll let you in ahead of time. He's not going to read Hebrews 11 to us. He's going to mention it, but he's not going to really, in any real sense of the term, deal with what the text says. So we'll have to go back and circle back and do that ourselves. But listen to what he says. Who did not consider their life... Worthy to be lived without following God. That's what a hero is in the Bible. It says in in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is a confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through faith, people in the days of old earned a good reputation. Uh, what? Okay, um, it's time to read Hebrews 11, okay? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Remember, the simplest way to keep yourself from being deceived. Three most primary rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. We read, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that's by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, I'm going to point something out to you here. In understanding sin and sanctification, there's a real simple thing to keep in mind. You do what you do because you are what you are. Okay, let me repeat that. You do what you do because you are what you are. Snakes slither. Cows moo. Dogs bark. Sinners sin. In the same way, that's the negative way. In the same way, Christians are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are ontologically different. We have a, a heart, our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Uh, we've been grafted into the true vine that's Jesus Christ. I mean, all, the, the, the biblical metaphors really make it clear that we're something new in Christ. As Christians, therefore, Christians do good works. Okay? And why? 
it, because they have faith in Christ. If you have true saving faith, that saving faith, it, it was, how, how did Luther put it? Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. It can't possibly be. That would be like saying you have a flame that doesn't have heat. Is, is it possible to have a flame that doesn't have heat? It pro- there's some physicists out there. Yeah, yeah there is. It, it's, a, it's a purple flame. that. Oh, anyway, when you light a match and you see the flame, there's heat and smoke that comes out as a result of it. That's the natural way we think about fire. So same thing. He, you know, same thing with the Christian life. You you do what you do because you are what you are. So as Christians, we are a new creation in Christ. Therefore, we do good works. So when you read here in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Notice, by faith, he did these things. So faith does things. It, it can't help but do things. Faith does good works. In fact, you know what? I'm going to have to do this. Uh, I was going to have you read it yourself. I'm going to have to read it to you. Ephesians chapter 2, okay? I'm going to read 8, 9, and 10 because they all kind of work together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, okay? This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. That is your salvation and your faith. And it is not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? So you see the the progression here. We do what we do because we are what we are. The reason why there's so much sin in the world is because sinners sin by nature. That's what sinners do. Christians do good works because they have a new nature. That's what they are. And so we're, we're, cre- we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So faith is the, is the thing that kind of hinges the whole thing together. We are saved by grace through faith, and that saving faith is never alone. It always produces good works in us, and they're for our neighbor. We serve our neighbor through them. So that's why in Hebrews 11 we see this progression. Always in talking about these great saints from the Old Testament— by faith, these people did these good works, okay? So you'll see the formula is by faith, they did good works. By faith, they did good works. By faith, they did good works. And here's the thing. Without faith, you can't have good works. Nothing you do can actually please God because Hebrews eleven six says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we read, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commended the word, the word, uh, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, 
Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she be considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars, uh, stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, so you got the picture here. So in this this passage here, talking about these ancient heroes, if you would, using his metaphor, um, these people, everyone mentioned here, all these these great things they did, they did them by faith. That's the thing. It's by faith. And without that faith, it would have been impossible to please God. So faith is a gift. And salvation is by grace through faith. And everyone who's ever been saved including those in the Old Testament, were saved by faith. Now we continue on with <clears throat> this uh, Guitar Hero sermon. That being said, listen carefully to how he uses this passage and see if you can see any confusion of law and gospel. It, it's, the Bible speaks of a hero as someone who has faith and has earned a good reputation. Someone who is... Uh, so the Bible, can, somebody's a hero if they have faith and has earned earned what's that that's law earned a good reputation uh-oh is counted as do, as do, doing something for god that goes beyond all normal ideas and sense okay that's all law so you've done something for god that be goes beyond oh boy <sighs> run uh, we've got a problem here uh, houston uh, you know there are different heroes of the faith there's moses there's Moses' parents. There's Noah. There's Abraham. There's Enoch. There's Deborah. There's all sorts of champions of the faith listed in Hebrews 11. I'm not going to go through all of them. But it Notice he's not keying in on the fact that they did those things by faith. He just calls them champions of the faith. Yikes. Wow. He's completely drifted by it, and he's not dealing with the text at all. 
But it talks about what they did. I'm going to circle down on one right now. Abraham. Abraham uh, took and, and God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to leave where you are. Where you're, I'm going to let you, I want you to pick up your stuff and move to a land in which I will show you. Now, how about you? Here you are. You've got your life. Everything's settled. You've got a nice house. You've got a nice job. Everything's put together. My kids are together. My house is together. I just got my lawn done. I am in good shape. Pool in the backyard. You know, Timplex Theater down the road. I'm good to go. And God says, it's time for you to move. Oh, okay. No problem, God. You gonna, you want me to move to that bigger house with the bigger thing and the bigger pool and, and next to the bigger cinema, right? No. I'm not going to tell you where, just leave where you are and move to where I show you. Mm-hmm. How many of us would do that? We're like, dude, I am not hearing right. I must have had some bad pizza last night. <laughs> Something's not right. I did not hear God right. And, and, and so here's Abraham stepping one step at a time, one step at a time as, as God shows him. Not knowing where he's going. Guess what happens? Abraham never made it. He never made it. He never made it to the land that God had promised. He never made it. But if he had never went, if he had never gone, if he had never taken a step, we... Uh, what? Abraham never made it? Uh, no, he did make it, and he lived there as a sojourner, as a foreigner. Do you know your Bible there, dude, at all? Oh, boy. Unbelievable. (sighs) Makes you wonder where he got his seminary degree. We would never have made it. The father, you know, there's many examples of the hero of faith. Heroes of faith. But it's all about, it's all about this. It's all about me rendering my life as worthless. Okay, law talk. It's me rendering my life, me, me. Rendering my, me rendering, me, the, no, where's the verbs? Who's doing the work? You are. This is not salvation by grace. He's literally describing salvation by works. Listen carefully. Jesus said this, if you want to be my disciple, take up my cross daily and follow me. In other words, die to what you want. That's the real That's the reality of what it means to follow Christ. And I'm assuming since we have everyone here this morning, all of you are here, you're either curious about following God or you're passionately pursuing him. And and I don't see any other other way. I don't see any in-between where I'm kind of just, you know, I like God, but I just ain't really all into him yet. You know, that means you're still seeking. Uh, here's a problem there, dude, based on that definition, then you, you haven't really moved beyond seeker because you can't really claim that you're all into God. First of all, you don't even know his word, right? And second, uh, you sin every day. How do you, you know, if you're all into God, then how come you still sin? Because those of us who have found him have decided that our lives are not worth living ourselves, that we must give up our lives and live and do as he says for us to do. Uh, but you don't do that. See, again, here, th- why do I say things like this? Because this kind of preaching is absolutely pharisaical, hypocritical, and just, just downright perniciously self-righteous. And the correct, uh, shall we say, prescription for dealing with self-righteousness is you crank the law up. 
Hey, uh, Pastor May there, dude, uh, I'd like to uh, chat with you about your sin. Because uh, you and I both know you sin on a daily basis. So here you're telling people how much you've, you know, how important you are and, and holding yourself up as somebody who's made this decision to be a follower of Christ. And I'm questioning your sincerity there because uh, it's obvious you're a sinner. What am I doing here? I'm pointing out the fact that he's a sinner. Why? It's to basically throw a cold bucket of water on the face of the self-righteous person and have them come to their senses and get on their knees and beg for God's mercy because they are not righteous. And the solution is not trying harder to be more righteous and more into God and more sincere. And yeah, huh? It's about lordship. It's about turning over my life to him. And there are people in this world that need it, aren't there? There are people. See, what I want to help us today is I want to help us understand how we live a life of faith. How do we become heroes in the Bible's standards? How do we become a hero as God would see a hero? It's all about doing something that isn't for you. Look at your neighbor. Uh, so how do you become a hero in the Bible standard? It's all about doing something. It's all about doings. That's law. That is not gospel. That's complete law. The gospel is everything that Christ has done for you. Oh, boy, this is messed up. Neighbors say it's time to stop living for yourself. Do not, don't we love living for ourselves? <laughs> Don't we love it? I mean, it's just the way it is. Yeah, and Pastor May, you do that. You live for yourself every single day. And don't try to sit here and tell me you don't, because you do. I want to show you something in the Scripture in John chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. I can't wait. In John chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Got to write it down here. Hang on a second. This is 5, 5 through 6. Make sure that I can get there. This is a little story. Jesus is walking in this place, and there's this pool called the Pool of Bethsaida. And there, there, uh, there are different people that are sick, and every now and then those waters would bubble up, and people would get into the pool, and it was said that they would be healed. And there was a man there, and, and there were many people there, many people sick there, and Jesus is among them. He's walking among them. And he looks down, and he sees this man. He's one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, he knew he'd been ill for a long time. And he asked, would you like to get well? Now, watch the response from this guy. The guy says this, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the, into the pool when the water bubbles up. Okay, I, I got to point this out. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. Let's listen to his interpretation, and then I'll take you back and show you something that you may not know about this passage. Hang on. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. There are people in this world, there are people in this city, there are people in your neighborhoods and in job you work that cannot get to the place of healing without help. Okay, so that's his takeaway from this. Uh, so this passage is telling us that there's a whole bunch of people that can't get to the place of healing without help. That's not what this ta this text is teaching at all, okay? And remember, our three important rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, uh, context, and uh, by the way, context. 
Now listen carefully. This isn't. This is a challenging story, and let's let, let me read this one for you. Now after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Which, by the way, they they found this uh, archaeologically. We know where this is. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, that should be an interesting thing. Now, let me let me explain something that's going on here. This pool in Bethesda at the time of Christ, the reason why the lame, the blind, and the paralyzed were there is because God had, had basically set up a very special healing that took place. And what would happen is, is that, you know, the way the story goes is that an angel would stir the water and the first person into the pool then would be healed. Kid you not. Okay. You have to understand that as, as you know, kind of the backdrop of what's going on. So this guy had been, he was been paralyzed, has been hanging out at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, so, which begs the question, does this guy really want to get healed? I mean, for 38 years, okay, he's been unable to get in and be healed. So we continue. So when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? Well, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, uh, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, I'm going to point something out to you here. This man wasn't healed because of his great faith. No, this man was healed. You can almost argue he was healed against his will. Just work with the passage, okay? We continue. Now, the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, well, the man who healed me, that that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Uh, Notice, no rejoicing, no, hey, thanks, none of that. And said he rats on Jesus. So they asked him, well, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see... You are well. Sin no more so that nothing worse might happen to you. This is a backhanded healing going on here. This isn't about how this poor guy is sitting there waiting for somebody to help him. No, there's something There's something deeper going on here. So Jesus finds him, says, see, you're well. So sin no more so that nothing worse can happen to you. And does the guy say, oh, thank you for healing me, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Instead, here's what we read. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. That's the guy who healed me. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just, I'm pointing this out because when you're handling God's word, you've got to look at the greater context of what's going on here. And it's not generally a good idea to be quoting selected portions of verses Um, If you're not really getting to the gist of what it is those verses teach, we continue. So anyway, that being said, 
this guy's point regarding John chapter 5, it doesn't apply. He's completely biffed the interpretation because he didn't look at the context. They just can't do it. It's a designed thing. I believe that God has put us here to, to do something. It says in the book of Genesis that when God created man, he created us to tend the garden, to watch over the earth, to manage it, to oversee it, to take care of it. The earth is everything that's in it, the animals, the planet itself, and people. God put us here to tend to one another. And one of the, the first murder in, in all of mankind was a brother killing a brother. And when God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? He goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The truth is, yes, we are. The problem is we live so much for ourselves that we can never be counted as a hero because of selfishness. Uh, is the reason we're counted as heroes because we've abandoned selfishness or is it because we have faith in Christ? We continue. You know, the, the marking characteristic of a hero is selflessness. When someone sacrifices their life so that so others might live, that's a selfless act. Okay, now uh, this is an obvious place to segue into the crucifixion and what Christ did for us on the cross. May is going to be doing that. Listen carefully, though, to see how he interprets the cross. That cannot be, cannot be over, un, undone or over, over, overshadowed. Jesus told him, stand up and pick up your mat and walk, and the guy does. And it causes all kind of, a pro, all kind of problems. Look what Jesus says here about helping someone. He says this, John 15, 13. This is my commandment for you. For those of you who are following me, for those of you who are serious, this is my commandment. Love each other. Okay, listen, listen. Oh, man, you got to listen. For those of you who are serious. Each other in the same way I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? It's evident on the cross, isn't it? He sacrificed his life that we might live. That's what he says. He says, love each other that way. He says, watch this. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Got any friends? Got any friends in here? Got any people who could possibly be a friend? Look around. You know the best thing I like about this audience configuration? You get to see each other. I know we're not all pretty to look at, but, you know, if you can look at me, you can look at everybody else. (laughs) No greater love can a man have than to lay his life down for his friends. What is love? Jesus equated love to this in Matthew 22. Okay, just pointing this out. He's basically, he's mentioned Christ laying down his life for us. Hasn't told us what that means. Isn't mentioning sin. Isn't mentioning repentance isn't mentioning the forgiveness of sins, that Christ died for our sins, you can almost say that he's basically making an argument that Jesus' death on the cross was basically to set an example for us of how to love our neighbors. That's law. That ain't the gospel. 37 through 39, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, he says this. He says, this is what worship is. This is what love is. When you love God more than anything, and when you love him with everything that you've got. So he's now just basically summarized the entire Mosaic law, love God and love your neighbor. And that's the thing that we're supposed to be doing. 
Well, the, see, that's the problem is, is that the law doesn't save us. It can't save us. It was never intended to save us. Scripture even says so. For if the law had been given by which we could be saved, then Christ died for nothing, Paul writes. Uh-huh. You're not giving me the gospel here. As a result of you, you're not giving me saving faith, the saving faith that does these good works because it is by Christians, by their new nature, love God and serve their neighbor. Very different thing going on here. When you love him with all of your strength, when you love him with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with everything that's in you, that is the greatest thing you can do. And when do you do that, uh, Pastor May? When do you love God with all your heart? Can you honestly say to me that that's what you do? Because, you see, if you sin at all during the day, uh, that shows your lack of love for God and shows that you are a wretched sinner in need of a Savior, not an example. Then he says, this is the second one. The second greatest thing you can do, it's equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. How would you like to live in a, in a world where everyone loved each other like they loved themselves? I, I'm actually looking forward to that. Uh, new heaven, new earth. It, it, it's going to be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? You know what? I believe that Brick City Community Church could actually be that. I really do. Really? Wow, the, the new earth is going to arrive at Brick City Community Church. They've, they're going to conquer sin. In fact, to me, this is the mark of real maturity in the church. Real maturity in people who are following Jesus. Do they love God more than they did yesterday? And do they love people more than they did yesterday? There's something... Law, law, law. Law, a little bit more law, and let me throw in some law on top of that law. We've got a law sandwich going on here. Thing about sacrifice and giving that expands our knowledge of God. When we, when we, when we give of ourselves to others, when we sacrifice our own life, and, and you know, some of us, when we think heroes, we think, you know, guy who jumps on a grenade to save his platoon. Or, or someone who, who you know, you know, stays back and pushes people up and then the, the ship goes under. I mean, we equate heroism to absolute death. But the truth is, a hero is a hero every day of, in their life. They're just noted as a hero when they die. You hear me? It's the little things that they do every day that actually build in them the, the resolve to die when it says die, death is needed. I don't know about you, but I hate watching movies where the hero dies, don't you? I love it when the hero somehow squeaks it out and wins and doesn't die. And every day I die. Every day I die at home when my wife looks at me and wants her way. And I go, no, I want my way. Just got to point this out. The fact that he's just confessed that shows that he doesn't love God with all of his heart. He's confessing he's a sinner. Is the solution to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and 
you know, try harder? Or is it to confess your sins and receive the forgiveness of sins and trust in Christ and his promises and the Holy Spirit working in your new nature? You see the difference? Big difference here, man. Big difference. Instead, I stop and go, you know, he's more important than I am. That's what the scripture says. Hebrews says, think of each other more highly than you think of yourself. Lay your life down. Have this attitude. Be like Christ, who, who though he was God, did not demand or cling to his rights as God, but humbled himself by dying, even by dying, for, even humbled himself further by dying a, a criminal's death on a cross. Okay, now listen, 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 listen. It's, it's the example that God has given to us, and it carries. Okay, so there it is. Jesus, his death on the cross. Oh, man. What's miss? This is an all law sermon. The gospel, you know, the, the Christ death on the cross is mentioned at least twice now, explicitly. Yet the forgiveness of sins, uh, not not in play. Uh, Christ, the example. Yeah, this is you got to lay down your life and be a hero like you know, like Christ. Um, you're kind of overlooking the fact that Christ is our hero. He came to seek and save the lost. He's the one who took the hit for us, redeemed us, died on the cross for our sins, rose victorious from the grave. I mean, here you're talking about guitar hero. This would be a perfect place to talk about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the things he's done to save us. Make him the hero, if you would. But no, he's just an example of how you need to be the a hero. There is great implications in how we respond. In fact, the Bible says this in Matthew is talking about in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. I want to, I want to just kind of, kind of give you, I can't, I didn't have enough time and I don't have enough time to expand on the whole entire thing, but basically in the end of days, this is how God says he's going to judge from the goats and he's talking actually. Okay. Now listen carefully. This is what I promised early on in the program a complete misunderstanding of the story of the she, uh, the sheep and the goat judgment here, okay? Oh, boy. You, 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 if you mess this one up, you, 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 if you turn this into they're saved by what they do, you miss an important thing in this text. Now, listen to his interpretation, then we'll, we'll circle back and look at what the passage says. To call it the goats and the sheep from those who are going to be spending an eternity with Christ and those who are going to be spending an eternity separate from him in, in all, all damnation and hell. This is, this is the determining factor. He said he's going to look at them. Okay, listen to what the determining factor is. And he's going to, he's going to look at those and he says, he's going to say this to him in verse 34 through 36. Then the King will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then people say to him and they respond to him, Lord, when did we do these things? When did we, when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? When did we see you these things? And he says this in verse 40. He says, the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Isn't that amazing? 
No, not the way you're interpreting it, but we continue. And it goes on later on, and it repeats the whole thing except from the opposite version. It says, you didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't, you didn't visit me when I was in prison. And they said, Lord, when did we see you this? And he said, when you did not do this for these brothers of mine, then you did not do it for me. Depart from me. The whole balance of eternity and my life spent in eternity is how have I followed Jesus' example? No. Oh, man. No, no, no. Your whole eternity is not based upon how well you followed Jesus' example. If that were the case, then nobody would be saved because none of us follow Jesus' example perfectly, which is what the law demands. Now, let's circle back and take a look at Matthew 25. There is an important, important, critical, vital piece to this section of Scripture that if you miss it, you will misinterpret this passage. We read Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The question here is, the separation. What is the basis of the separation? It's by what they are. You are either a sheep or you are either a goat. The separation is made on the basis of what you are, not what you've done. Christians who trust in Christ Trust is, in Greek, literally the word we get for faith. Those who believe, those who trust, those who have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They've been given repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and they trust in Christ. They are sheep by nature now. They have a new nature. They are a new creation. Pagan unbelievers are goats by nature. So the separation is made on the basis of what you are. Then the discussion of what you have or haven't done comes up. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats he will place on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. Okay, now listen. What you do, what you do, because you are what you are. A couple of things are important here. Now he's describing the good works that are produced by faith. By faith, Noah, by faith, Moses, by faith, Abel, by faith. Remember Hebrews 11? By faith, you do good works. 
you can't help but do good works. I mean, to say that there's a Christian out there who says he's saved but doesn't do good works, that, 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 that animal doesn't exist. That's a goat dressed up as a sheep. Okay? So he will say to the those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed, for I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, those are the ones who are declared righteous, will answer him, saying, Lord, uh, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? That's the thing about good works. When you do the thing you do by nature, you you really don't even notice it. It's just the thing you do. We did what? what when did we do that? Right? Okay. When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, well, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All those good works you did, they were for me. You did it to me. The veil is lifted. You can see now what's really going on. That opportunity to serve your neighbor. Oh, you are actually have this amazing opportunity to serve your Lord and Savior. Because our great God and King says that when you do it for the least of these, you're not doing it just for them. You're doing it for him. And sheep do sheepy things by nature because that's what sheep do. And they were separated by what they are. We continue. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. They will also... Uh, <clears throat> Say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and, and didn't minister to you? And then you will say to them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Plain and simple. They're separated by what they are. Sheep are those who trust in Christ. They can't help but do good works because that's what sheep do by nature. Goats, well, they don't. We continue. How have I, how have I, have I decreased my own life and my own selfishness? And how have I given myself selflessly to you? That's the point. That's the point. So you say, what, what is all this about, Bill? So he's describing literally salvation by your works. The truth is, you can't do this on your own. You got to have friends. Look at your neighbor and say, I got to have a friend. <laughs> I got to have a friend. Look at your other neighbor and say, You got a friend in me. See, at Brick City Community Church, we take these things literal. That's why we do things like spend $14,000 to go to J. Glenn Edwards and clothe people who do not have clothes. That's why we do that. People go, why did you do that? I, I got to say this. It's great that you are going and fee giving clothes to people who need them. 
But without faith, it's impossible to please God. Your good works count as nothing. You're not saved by your works. Because we're following Jesus' example. And when we do that to the least of these, then we've done it to him. And that's who we serve. You know, we do a lot of things wrong here. And I'm not the perfect guy by no means. My wife can give you a list. But I'll tell you this right now. I'll give everything I've got that this church will follow Jesus' example. That we will die to ourselves and show Christ to the world by, by our actions. can't just tell someone, I love you. You can't just tell someone, I, I, I'll serve you. You have to show them. That's why we do the things we do. That's why around here at BCC, we have tons of heroes. Heroes that serve every day. Heroes that served in the coffee bar this morning. Heroes that served at children's check-in this morning. Heroes that served on this band. Heroes that served in the nursery. Heroes that go and pack up all the tent and stuff that you see outside and they take it to Jay Glenn Edwards and set it up and do amazing things with just, just an attitude of, I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. That's what God is after. That's what he's after in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's, uh, Paul writes this. He says, For Christ's love compels us, and because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live, watch this, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That is the real mark of someone following Jesus. That- uh, you, you completely miss the fact that they trust in Christ, and then as a result of that, they do good works because they are a new creation in Christ. It's because of the work of the gospel in us that we do good works. You're basically pushing for the fruit of faith without discussing faith, trust, and repentance in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Good works cannot be cultivated this way. You are literally, Bill, just telling these people legalism and self-righteousness. Oh, boy. That they do not live for themselves, but they live for the one who died for them. And you can see it. You can see it. You can see it. You can see it. How is it cultivated? How is it cultivated? It's cultivated by a choice to begin to do something greater than your own life. So this is cultivated by a choice to do something greater. Oh, boy. This is all law. This is not the gospel. This is nothing but pure, unadulterated, legalistic, pharisaical self-righteousness. This is not the proclamation of Christ's righteousness, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Oh, man. This is a formula that will send people to hell. Sadly, that, that that is the case. Something that's worthy of giving all that you've got to it. Finding a cause that is so worthy that you would give yourself to follow that cause. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about some other heroes of the faith. And I'm going to read this out of my Bible. It says, By by faith people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from the death. 
from the dead. But others, listen, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut on with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over the deserts and the mountains, hiding in caves and the holes in the ground. Listen, listen to this. Listen, this, this, these, the next three verses that I'm going to read to you have profound effect on the life we live here on this earth. Listen to what he says. He says, all these people, the people I just read about, all these people were a good had had earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised for God had something better in mind for us. God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. In other words, it's not over. You guys think all that you did, that was good, but they haven't finished yet. They're waiting. They've stopped. They're waiting and they're watching us. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. It continues from 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially that sin that so easily trips us up. Watch this. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. How do we do it? We do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Okay, he completely biffed up that last part of Hebrews. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Our faith comes from God. Unbelievable. This is just wretched what this guy is doing here with God's word. Oh, and then he goes on to list all these people that are supposedly pulling it off. This is nothing but self-righteousness. Unbelievable. He basically sounds like Jesus is the guy who initiates it, and he's the guy who coaches us into a better way of, of doing faith. But that's not what this text teaches at all. This is nothing less than a completely legalistic way of viewing this passage. Here we go. Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. <laughs> there it is. Jesus, the guy who initiates and perfects our faith. No, he's the author of it and the perfecter of it. Unbelievable. Today, you're going to be faced with a choice. Today. There are people in this audience right now who serve relentlessly. I can name them. There's one back there, Gail King. Gail King's a hero in this church. Diana Green. Yvonne Bullard, Ricky Johnson, Terry Patterson, Becky Barron. They're all heroes in this church because they've served. Where's Steve Baker? He might not even be in here. He's probably serving. They're heroes, and I can name them. But there are a lot of you in here who've been kicking the tires. You've been waiting around. You've been watching and you've been looking. You've been decided. You maybe even have decided to follow Jesus. You maybe have even taken one of these red bags. You maybe have even started your journey. But you've got to take another step. You see, you really, really, really aren't truly following Jesus until you're serving other people. Oh, boy. This is all law. Wow. 
how do I know when I've done enough so that I can really say that I've uh, I really am a follower of Jesus? Is it when I've helped two people beside myself, three, four, maybe a thousand? How do I? What's the threshold to where I can say, okay, now I'm a follower of Jesus? That's the thing about the law; it doesn't give you that because it demands perfect righteousness. Oh boy! I mean, that's the truth. That's why we're supposed to be here together. That's why we don't do this as TV. That's why we don't have a TV popped on me and all y'all just sit in your house and watch me on TV and send your checks in. That won't work. I'm not knocking that. There's good stuff for that. But that won't work for a congregation because you cannot learn to be like Jesus until you've had the opportunity to lay down your life for other people. But this is all law. You can't learn to be like Jesus until you've done this. You can't until you've done and all. No, there's no gospel here at all. Whoa. Oh boy. That's it. Not only in here, but out there. So at BCC, you know what we decided? We're going to do everything we can to help equip people to be like Jesus, to lay their life down. So today, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to end my message right here. And I'm Well, praise the Lord for small miracles. And I'm going to release you to go talk to some real-life heroes at this church. And I'm going to give you a chance. Uh, those are the, be the people they just named. Apparently, they're, they're the ones who are pulling it off. They're serving enough to be called Christ followers. I want you to open up your program. I don't have a program. Terry, do you have a, do you have a notes program? Thank you, Darren. You can keep the good part. I'll take this part. I want you to open up your notes in your program. It's time to cultivate a life of serving. It's time to cultivate inside of you the beginning of a hero. And that would be faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Unbelievable. Remember what I said. Heroes aren't the guys that just die. They, they were doing heroism all along the way. They were doing one heroic act after... You lied. You said you were going to stop the sermon right there. You didn't stop. <sighs> ...after another until they finally extended their entire life. And that's what we're going to train you to do. So on this program, those of you who are not involved, those of you who are, who are kind of, mm, mm, you know, and listen, if you say, well, I do the nursery once a month, come on, step it up, baby. Step it up. All right? Now, you'll see some things. There's some jobs we got. You can help us usher. You can pass the plate. You can ha you can handle the money. Yeah. You can you can help people find a seat in a crowded place cuz that's what this place is becoming. Crowded. By the way, last weekend was a holiday weekend. We had 347 people both services. That is more people than we had Every week, every Sunday, that's more people than our highest Sunday throughout all 2007. Does this guy know anything about what Jesus has done for us? I mean, he sure does talk about himself and the people he thinks are pulling it off a lot, but uh, seems to not really understand who Jesus is and what he's really done at all. Oh, boy. Except for Christmas. We were up 30%, 30-some percent from the same time last year. Two weeks ago, we had 385 and we were up 69% from the same time last year. This church is growing like crazy. 
And it's growing because people are giving their lives to it. And they're giving their lives to what we're doing out in the community. It's growing because people are giving their lives to what about repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? That is, you know, you familiar with Christ saying, go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name to all nations? Luke 24. You familiar with that at all? And it's catching wind. It's catching, it's catching notice. Oh, there's wind. All right. Greeters, you can greet. You can just be friendly to people when they come in the door. You can welcome those. You remember that verse I read? It says, well, did, where did I invite you to come in? When did I invite you to come in? When you invited the least of these. You can do that. You can. Be- well, he said he was going to stop the sermon. He's gone on like almost three minutes now since he said he was going to stop the sermon. <sighs> be a greeter. You can be in traffic and parking. You can get run over by a car and then someone will raise you from the dead. <laughs> Amazing. I've seen it happen. It's a little scary, but it's cool. You can work in guest services, man. You can sit behind a computer and like an airplane clerk, you know, thing in the terminal. Oh, I see what this legalistic, self-righteous sermon's all about. Oh, they're trying to basically strong-arm people into filling in for the volunteer positions that are available now that their church is growing because they're so relevant. Oh, man. You can be in children's check-in. You can have the best job in the whole entire church. Telling kids, stop. I haven't done you yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay, go. Watch them run. (laughs) You can be involved in the nursery. You can be involved in our white glove. If you're the kind of person that loves clean. I mean, you love clean. Part of the reason you're probably here is because you go, This place is really clean. You can help us keep it that way. I want you to do this. I want you to take, and and if if you're a new, and I want you to make your decision right now, I want you to go out there and talk to people. And we've got donuts and fruit and stuff out there for you. And I want you to go talk to them. In fact, I'm over my time, five minutes. I gotta be quiet, I gotta shut up, all right? So I want you to write your name out, and I want you to check off what you want. Go out there and talk to some people, and, and that'll be cool. Now, so I'm gonna uh, don't don't get in your car and go home because we're not letting your kids out. <laughs> you can't leave. It's all out on the terrace, all out on the patio. I was right. This is just literally strong arm techniques to get people to volunteer. Whew, bad theology to boot. Wow. And then on the other side of this, here's what we want you to do today. We want you to get involved in a ministry inside the church and a ministry outside the church. Because you can't be considered a Christ follower until you do that. Inside the church is outside. (laughs) Go figure. Uh In the inside, by the guest services area, there's all of our outreach projects. We want you to sign up and help us knock outreach out of the park. It's so easy. And we all do it. So if you don't do it, you're like a loser. I mean... Not only are you not a Christ follower if you don't do it, you're a loser like the people who play Guitar Hero, who was the target market for this particular sermon. All the whole church almost does it. So if you don't get involved, that's your problem. You know, you're just like, loser. All right? So I want you to do that. Now, if you're here and you're a guest. What has the church done to deserve pastors like this? Unbelievable. Yes, and you're going, dude, I just started coming. I am not. Sign it up. Do not fret. You can stay right in here. In fact, what I'm going to do 
For those of you who are new and want to know more about the church, I'm going to ask you to just kind of sit right in this middle spot. We got a book we're going to give you, and I'm going to stay in here, and I'm going to help you get through, you know, figuring out who we are. So let's stand, and I'm going to pray for you and release you to the lobby. Lord, we just stay. All right, we're done. We're done. We're done. That was, oh, boy. Bad hermeneutics, completely law-based, no gospel, nothing. It was a complete jumbled gobbledygook mess of self-righteous legalism. Oh, boy. Um, hang on a second here. <clears throat> Let me see if I can... Uh, uh, let's see. Where do I want to go here? Uh-huh. All right. I'm going to go to Galatians chapters 2 and 3. All right, here we go. Uh, Starting at verse 11, Galatians chapter 2, I read, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. By the way, this this was written to the churches in Galatia, and because they had fallen for the false gospel of the Judaizers who'd come in and says, You're not really a true Christian unless you're also circumcised. You're not really saved. It's salvation by grace through faith plus circumcision. Bill's uh, sermon here, I mean, there wasn't even salvation by grace. It's salvation by becoming a Christ follower and and really sincerely, really working hard to follow his example. That's legalism. It's very similar to uh, the Galatian heresy without the grace. <clears throat> For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel of the truth, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though uh, through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh?
did you suffer so many things in vain, if, it, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so because of works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see what's going on here? You see what's going on here? That man, Pastor Bill May, he preached nothing but law and no gospel. He preached salvation based purely on works, and said that was the key thing. He misinterpreted Matthew chapter 25, completely biffed it in Hebrews 11, and completely botched John chapter 5, uh, verses 5 and 6. The conclusions he draw were, that's not Christianity. That is nothing else other than self-righteous legalism, and it's a different gospel, and that's the kind of gospel that sends people to hell. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ died for your sins. Your salvation isn't dependent on you making a sincere effort to try to become a Christ follower and really working hard to serve other people so that you can show that you, you really are a Christ follower. No. Christianity teaches you do what you do because you are what you are. Those who follow and obey Christ do so because of faith. They do those things by faith. The good works are a result of faith. They are the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, produced by God and His Word and the, through the working of the Holy Spirit in us. For truly, truly, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. You cultivate good works by proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. You cultivate repentance through the preaching of the gospel and the clarion call of the good news of the forgiveness of sins offered by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for our sins. That good news is for you and it's for me. I don't care if you've been a Christian your whole life. I've got good news for you. Christ died for your sins. 
even those embarrassing sins that you dare not tell anybody about, the ones that you committed even today. Christ, Christ died for those sins. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and trust in this good news. It truly is for you. Well, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. Would you consider partnering with us and sharing with, the, sharing with us the blessings that God has given you material, materially and financially so that we can continue to bring, to bring Fighting for the Faith not only to you but to other people? You can partner with us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, my prayers, and I hope your prayers too, go out to um, uh, Pastor Bill May and Brick City Community Church. Grant, pray that God would grant that the clear preaching of the gospel would be brought to them so that they would repent of this false doctrine and hear the good news of the true gospel of Jesus Christ and as a result of it, be set free from the bondage of this legalistic preaching. Unbelievable. Mm. Well, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any other edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook. My name is Chris Rosebro. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for you. Yeah, you. Amen. Amen.